What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I killed Pete, and I feel horrible about it. Or I may not have killed Pete. I'm not exactly sure yet. Uh, Over the last weekend, um, I would do some random cleaning around the new house, and by the back door where there's kitty litter, I saw a huge cobweb that was super thick by this one light. And as I took a broom to sweep it away, I saw a whole family of spiders just go running for it. And that kind of creeped me out. I'm okay with one spider, but... There was like six or something. There was a lot of spiders. And I thought, okay, I'm going to ignore that because maybe if I'm lucky, they'll go away, find a way to get outside and leave me alone. But instead, um, I saw ants too. I saw two different ants and I thought, this is bad. It's spring and they're all coming in. So I went out and I bought some bug spray and um, I sprayed all around the outside of the house. And then I knew what was coming. I went into the back door sprayed around there, and uh, knew I was killing some of Pete's friends and families and cousins. And then I went down to the basement and started spraying all around. And as I worked my way back towards the crappy podcast studio, I looked for Pete on a spot on the wall, and thankfully he wasn't there because it gives me hope that Pete will have made it, have hidden from the, from the apocalypse. So here's hoping that I see Pete again, my only fan. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Today we're reading Chapter 3 of The Iron Heel by Jack London. In chapters 1 and 2, My Eagle and Challenges, we learned of Ernest Everhard, giant handsome man and pretty boy, and smartest man on earth, 
who keeps being invited to a rich man's home to debate the working class versus the non-working class with a bunch of preachers. And as each preacher is systematically knocked down in his logic by Ernest's perfect arguments, uh, the hero of our story, Avis, whose name eventually becomes Everhard, the daughter of the rich man who invites him to dinner all the time, is more or less telling us all about the amazing things that Ernest has said and all the arguments he wins. Uh, And as I've said in previous episodes, this book is notable for being one of the first dystopian novels about an America under tyrannical rule, but it also is one of the first novels written by a man from the point of view of a woman, though so far she hasn't had much of a point of view or much to say, which has been disappointing for me, and I can't seem to shut up about it. So, uh, maybe in this chapter, we will be allowed to see her speak. She is now going to chase down a one-armed man that Ernest and she had seen out the window as they were having dinner with one of the last remaining priests that would talk to him. And uh, he knew everything about this guy. It's said, go talk to him about his struggles. And that is what she's going to do. So, Avis... Ever the street reporter is going to hit the streets and go talk to Jackson in Chapter 3 in our third chance at loving this book, Jackson's Arm. Little did I dream the fateful part Jackson's Arm was to play in my life. Jackson himself did not impress me when I hunted him out. I found him in a crazy ramshackle house down near the bay on the edge of the marsh. Pools of stagnant water stood around the house, their surfaces covered with a green and putrid-looking scum, while the stench that arose from them was intolerable. I found Jackson the meek and lowly man he had been described. He was making some sort of rattan work, probably not pronouncing that right, and he toiled on stolidly while I talked with him. But in spite of his meekness and lowliness, I fancied I caught the first note of a nascent bitterness in him when he said, Eh, they might have given me a job as a watchman anyway. I got little out of him. He struck me as stupid. And yet the deafness with which he worked with his one hand seemed to belie his stupidity. This suggested an idea to me. How did you happen to get your arm cut in the machine, I asked. He looked at me in a slow and pondering way and shook his head. I don't know. It just happened. Carelessness? I prompted. No, he answered. I ain't for calling it that. I was working overtime, and I guess I was... Tired out some. I worked 17 years in in them mills, and I've took notice that most of the accident happens just before the whistle blow. I'm willing to bet that more accidents happens, more accidents happens in the hour before whistle blow than at all the rest of the day. A man ain't so quick after working steady for hours. Burp. I've seen too many of them cut up and gouged and chawed not to know. And by the way, I'm not trying to sound like a, a average common man. They when like when he says I'm willing, 
It's W-I-L-L-I-N with an apostrophe or whatever at the end. So uh, I'm not just trying to do that. Many of them, I queried. Hundreds and hundreds and children, too. With the exception of the terrible details, Jackson's story of his accident was the same as I had already heard. When I asked him if he had broken some rule of work in the machinery, he shook his head. I chucked off the belt with my right hand, he said, and made a reach for the flint with my left. I didn't stop to see if the belt was off. I thought my right hand had done it, only it didn't. I reached quick, and the belt wasn't all the way off, and then my arm was chewed off. It must have been painful, I said sympathetically. The crunching of the bones wasn't nice, was his answer. His mind was rather hazy concerning the damaged suit. Only one thing was clear to him, and that was that he had not got any damages. He had a feeling that the testimony of the foreman and the superintendent had brought about the adverse decision of the court. Their testimony, as he put it, wasn't what it ought to have been, and to them I resolved to go. One thing was plain. Jackson's situation was wretched. His wife was in ill health, and he was unable to earn by his rattan work I swear I'm saying that wrong. And peddling sufficient food for the family. He was back in his rent. And the oldest boy, a lad of eleven, had started to work in the mills. They might have given me that watchman's job, were his last words as I went away. Well, she's pretty empathetic to him. That's pretty nice. Let's, uh, let's look up rattan. Rattan. Definition of rattan. A rattan cane or switch. Or two, a, a climbing palm, especially in the uh, very long stems, a part of the jointed stem of a rattan used especially for furniture. Oh, sure, like a rattan chair. Let's see how it's pronounced. Rattan. Oh. Rattan. Rattan sounds fancier. I'm saying it my way. By the time I had seen the lawyer who had handled Jackson's case, and the two foremen and the superintendent at the mills who had testified, I began to feel that there was something, after all, in Ernest's contention. He was a weak and inefficient-looking man, the lawyer, and at the sight of him I did not wonder that Jackson's case had been lost. My first thought was that it had been served Jackson right for getting such a lawyer, but the next moment... Two of Ernest's statements came flashing into my consciousness. Quote, The company employs very efficient lawyers. And, Colonel Ingram is a shrewd lawyer. That's my attempt at sounding like a voice in her head. I did some rapid thinking. It dawned upon me that, of course, the company would afford finer legal talent than could a working man like Jackson. But this was merely a minor detail. There was some very good reason, I was sure, why Jackson's case had gone against him. Why'd you lose the case, I asked. The lawyer was perplexed and worried for a moment, and I found it in my heart to pity the wretched little creature. Burp. When he began to whine, I do believe his whine was congenital. He was a man beaten at birth. He whined about the testimony. The witnesses had given only the evidence that helped the other side. Not one word 
would he get out of them that would have helped Jackson. They knew which side their bread was buttered on. Jackson was a fool. He had been browbeaten and confused by Colonel Ingram. Colonel Ingram was a a brilliant at cross-examination. He had made Jackson answer damaging questions. How could his answers be damaging if he was on the... If he'll start over. How could his answers be damaging if he had had the right on his side, I demanded. What's right got to do with it, he demanded back. You see all those books. He moved his hand over the array of volumes on the walls of his tiny office. All my reading and studying of them has taught me that law is one thing and right is another thing. Ask any lawyer... You go to Sunday school to learn what is right, but you go to those books to learn dot, 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 law. Do you mean to tell me that Jackson had the right side and yet was beaten? I queried tentatively. Do you mean to tell me that there is no justice in Judge Caldwell's uh, court? I want to say heart real bad, but no, it's court. The little lawyer glared at me for a moment, and then the belligerence faded out of his face. I hadn't a fair chance, he began whining again, even though I said it all noble-sounding. They made a fool out of Jackson and out of me, too. What chance had I? Uh, Colonel Ingram is a great lawyer. If he wasn't great, he would have charge of the law business of the Sierra Mills, of the Erston Land Syndicate, and of the Berkeley Consolidated, of the Oakland San Lendro and... Plantin Electric? Question mark. He is a corporation lawyer, and corporation lawyers are not paid for being fools. What do you think the Sierra Mills alone gave him $20,000 a year for? Because he's worth $20,000 a year to them, that's what's for. I'm not worth that much. If I was, I wouldn't be on the outside, starving and taking cases like Jackson's. What do you think I'd have got if I won Jackson's case? You'd have robbed him, most probably, I answered. Of course I would, he cried angrily. I've got to live, haven't I? He has a wife and children, I chided. So have I a wife and children, he retorted. And there's not a soul in this world except myself that cares whether they starve or not. His face suddenly softened. And he opened up his watch and showed me a small photograph of a woman and two little girls pasted inside the case. There they are! Look at them! We've had a hard time, a hard time. I had hoped to send them away to the country if I'd won Jackson's case. They're not healthy here, but I can't afford to send them anyway. I love that there was a time where being in certain climates was unhealthy for you. Though this is... Well, this is America. I don't know. Who knows what the coal was like in the air and people were just like dying of cancer. I have no idea, but I wish I could make up that excuse and just quit my job and move to the country for health reasons. When I started to leave, he dropped back into his wine. I hadn't a ghost of a chance. Colonel Ingram and Judge Cardwell are pretty friendly. I'm not saying that if I got the right kind of testimony out of their witnesses on cross-examination, friendship would have decided the case. And yet, I must say that Judge Cadwell did a whole lot to prevent my getting that very testimony. Why, Judge Cadwell and Colonel Ingram belong to the same lodge in the same club. They live in the same neighborhood, one I can't afford. And their wives are 
always in and out of each other's houses. They're always having whist parties. Ooh, what's a whist party? And things back and forth. And yet you think Jackson had the right of it? I asked, pausing for a moment on the threshold. I don't think. I know it, was his answer. And at first I thought he had some show, too. But I didn't tell my wife. I didn't want to disappoint her. She had her heart set on a trip to the country, uh, hard enough as it was. Why'd you not call attention to the fact that uh, Jackson was trying to save the machinery from being injured? I asked Peter Donnelly, one of the foremen who had testified at the trial. He pondered a long time before replying. Then he cast an anxious look about him and said, Because I've got a good wife and three of the sweetest children you ever laid eyes on, that's why. I do not understand, I said. In other words, because it wouldn't have been healthy, he answered, and wouldn't have been is wouldn't than the letter A-B-E-N. You mean, I began, but he interrupted passionately. I mean what I said. It's long years I've worked in the mills. I began as a little lad on the spindles. I worked up ever since. It's by hard work I got to my present exalted position. I'm a foreman, if you please, and I doubt me if there's a man in the mills that put out a hand to drag me from drowning. I used to belong to the union, but I've stayed by the company through two strikes. They called me scab. There's not a man among them today to take a drink with me if I asked him. Do ye see the scars? Jeez, the letter D, apostrophe Y-E. See the scars on me head. And now he's a pirate all of a sudden, where I was struck with flying bricks. There ain't a child at the spindles, but what would curse me name? Me only friend is the company. It's not me duty, but me bread and butter, and the life of me children who stand by the mills, that's why. He totally turned into a pirate. Was Jackson to blame? I asked. He should have got the uh, should a got the damages. He was a good worker, and never made trouble. Then you were not at liberty to tell the whole truth as you had sworn to do. He shook his head. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I said solemnly. Again, his face became impassioned, and he lifted it not to me, but to heaven. I'd let me soul and body burn in everlasting hell for them children of mine, was his answer. Henry Dallas, the superintendent, was a vulpine-faced creature who regarded me insolently and refused to talk. Not a word could I get from him concerning the trial and his testimony, but with the other foremen I had better luck. James Smith was a hard-faced man, and my heart sank as I encountered him. He, too, gave me the impression that he was not a free agent. And as we talked, I began to see that he was mentally superior to the average of his kind. He agreed with Peter Donnelly that Jackson should have got the damages, and he went further and called the action heartless and cold-blooded. That had turned the worker adrift after he had been made helpless by the accident. Also, he explained that there were many accidents in the mills and that the company's policy was to fight, to the bitter end, all consequent damaged suits. It means, 
Hundreds of thousands a year to the stockholders, he said. And as he spoke, I remember the last dividend that had been paid by my father and the petty gown for me and the books for him that had been bought out of that dividend. I remembered Ernest's charge that my gown was stained with blood and my flesh began to crawl underneath my garments. <laughs> when you testified at the trial... You didn't point out that Jackson received his accident, though trying to save the machinery from damage, I said? No, I did not, was the answer, his mouth set bitterly. I testified to the effect that Jackson injured himself by neglect and carelessness, and that the company was not in any way to blame or liable. Was it carelessness, I asked. Call it that. Or anything you want to call it. The fact is, a man gets tired after he's been working for hours. I was becoming interested in the man. He certainly was of a superior kind. You are better educated than most working men, I said. I went through high school, he replied. <laughs> I worked my way through doing janitor work. I wanted to go through the university, but my father died, and I came to work in the mills. I wanted to become a naturalist. He explained shyly, as though confessing a weakness. I love animals, but I came to work in the mills. When I was promoted to foreman, I got married, and then the family came, and, well, I wasn't my own boss anymore. What do you mean by that, I asked. I was explaining why I testified at the trial the way I did, why I followed instructions. Whose instructions? Colonel Ingram. He outlined the evidence I was to give. And it lost Jackson's case for him. He nodded, and the blood began to rise darkly in his face. And Jackson had a wife and two children dependent on him. I know, he said quietly, though his face was growing darker. Tell me, I went on. Was it easy to make yourself over from what you were, say, in high school, to the man you must have become to do such a thing at the trial? The suddenness of his outburst startled and frightened me. He ripped out a savage oath and clenched his fist as though about to strike me. I beg your pardon, he said in the next moment. No, it was not easy, and now I guess you can go away. You've, all, you've got all you wanted out of me, but let me tell you this before you go. You won't do any good to repeat anything I've said. I'll deny it. <clears throat> And there are no witnesses. I'll deny every word of it. And if I do, I'll do it under oath and on a witness stand. Oh, if they only had tape players or recorders back then, she could have got the whole thing on there. And play it, like, during the trial, dramatically, to make everyone gasp. After my interview with Smith, I went to my father's office in the chemistry building and there encountered Ernest. It was quite unexpected. So he's just hanging around the house now, even when the dad's not around. But he met me with bold eyes and a firm hand clasp. And with that curious blend of his awkwardness and ease, it was as though our last stormy meeting was forgotten. But I was not in the mood to have it forgotten. I've been looking up Jackson's case, I said abruptly. He was all interested in attention and waiting for me to go on, though I could see in his eyes the certitude that my convictions had been shaken. 
He seems to have been badly treated, I confessed. I I think some of his blood is dripping from our roof beams. <laughs> of course, he answered. If Jackson and all his fellows were treated mercifully, the dividends would not be so large. I shall never be able to take pleasure in petty gowns again, I added. Wow, she's really just not fighting back on that one. I mean, she doesn't have to, but uh, even I would be a little uh, pissy and not so eager to say, you're right. I felt humble and contrite, and was aware of the sweet feeling that Ernest was a sort of father confessor. Oh, then, uh, as ever after, his strength appealed to me. It seemed to radiate, radiate a promise of peace and protection. Nor will you be able to take pleasure in sackcloth, he said gravely. There are the jute mills, you know, and the same thing goes on here. It goes on everywhere. Our boasted civilization is based upon blood, soaked in blood, and neither you nor I nor any of us can escape the scarlet stain. The men you talked with, who were they? I told him all that had taken place. And not one of them was a free agent, he said. They were all tied to the merciless industrial machine and the pathos of it and the tragedy that they were are tied by their heartstrings. Their children, always the young life and... That it is their instinct to protect. This instinct is stronger than any ethic they possess. My father, he lied, he stole. He did all sorts of dishonorable things to put bread into my mouth and into the mouths of my brothers and sisters. He was a slave to the industrial machine, and it stamped his life out, worked him to death. But you, I interjected, you are surely a free agent. Not wholly, he replied. I am not tied by my heartstrings. I am often thankful that I have no children, and I dearly love children. Yet if I married, I should not dare to have any. That surely is a bad doctrine, I cried. I know it is, he said sadly. Oh, I know it is, he said sadly. But it is expedient doctrine. I am a revolutionist. And it is a perilous vocation. I laughed incredulously. <laughs> if I tried to enter your father's house at night to steal his dividends from the Sierra Mills, what would you do? He sleeps with a revolver on the stand by his bed, I answered. He would most probably shoot you. And if I and a few others should lead a million and a half men into the houses of all the well-to-do, there would be a great deal of shooting, wouldn't there? Yes, but you are not doing that, I objected. It is precisely what I am doing, and we intend to take not the mere wealth in the houses, but all the sources of that wealth, all the mines and the railroads and the factories and the banks and the stores. That is revolution. It is truly perilous. There will be more shooting, I am afraid. Then even I dream of. But as I was saying, no one today is a free agent. We are all caught up in the wheels and cogs of the industrial machine. You found that you were, and that the men you talked with were. Talk with them some, talk with some more of them. Go and see Colonel Ingram. Look up the reporters that kept Jackson's case out of the papers and the editors that run the papers, and you will find them all slaves of the machine. 
A little later in our conversation, I asked him a simple little question. Oops. I tapped on the screen and I tried to highlight a word and then give me the dictionary definition of it. Uh, A little later in our conversation, I asked him a simple little question about the liability of working men to accidents and received a statistical lecture in return. It's all in the books, he said. The figures have been gathered, and it has been proved conclusively that accidents rarely occur in the first hours of the morning work, but that they increase rapidly in the succeeding hours as the workers grow tired and slower in both their muscular and mental processes. Why, do you know that your father has three times as many chances for safety of life and limb Then, has a working man? He has. The insurance companies know. They will charge him $4.20 a year on a $1,000 accident policy, and for the same policy, they will charge a laborer of $15. And you? I asked. In the moment of asking, I was unaware of the solicitude that was something more than slight. Oh, as a revolutionist, I have about eight chances to the working man's one of being injured and killed. Yeah, that's awesome, he answered carelessly. The insurance companies charge the highly trained chemists that handle explosives eight times what they charge the working men. I don't think they'd insure me at all. Why did you ask? My eyes fluttered, and I could feel the blood warm in my face. It was not that he had caught me in my solicitude, but that I had caught myself, and in his presence. Just then my father came in and began making preparations to depart with me. Wow, so he's going to leave the guy in the house? Ernest returned some books he had borrowed, and went away first. Oh, that's nice. But just as he was going, he turned and said, Oh, by the way, while you are ruining your own peace of mind, and I am ruining the bishops, you better look up Mrs. Wixon, and Mrs. Partonwaith. That's an unfortunate name. Their husbands, you know, are the two principal stockholders in the mills. Like all the rest of humanity, those two women are tied to the machine. But they are so tied that they sit on top of it. And that was Chapter 3 of The Iron Heel by Jack London. Jackson's arm. What did we learn today? We learned that Ernest is still perfect, physically, emotionally, mentally. We learned that he's chosen the life of revolutionary, which is so much more expensive uh, with your health insurance, which isn't fair because it's just gunplay. We learned that Avis still doesn't have much of a personality. Uh, She did go out and interview people, so she got to have a little bit of a moment in the sun. The chapter was mostly hers, except not because it was everybody else doing all the talking and her just sort of asking follow-up questions. The only time we got to see anything emotional come from her is when she ran into Ernest in the library or whatever when Dad's not around. Uh, Just to basically say, you were right, I'm wrong. And uh, that seems a little unnatural for most human beings. Usually they put up more of a fight. As I said earlier, uh, things haven't changed. This book is still as masturbatory as it was before. But I'm hoping the characters will get fleshed out. 
and uh, the story might have more going on than just a lot of "Hey, I'm right" going on. I'd like to see a little, a little more conflict or something happening, and uh, maybe it will, because this is Jack London after all. Uh, he's written other books. He's good. And I hope you enjoyed the story, and I hope that Tiny Pete survived the onslaught, and that I'll see Pete again, as I hope to see you.